everyone and welcome back to Safe Space, the Safe in Our World podcast. For those who don't know, the main goal of Safe in Our World is to create and foster worldwide mental health awareness within the games industry. My name is Rosie and today I'm joined by Demi Fortson, who is the co-founder at Mendu and is also a doctoral student researcher at Columbia University in the city of New York. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. It's lovely to, to speak to you again. I know that we've already spoken a few times, so it's, it's really nice to have you on the podcast. Yes, and I'm excited to get into some meteor conversations too, because yes. we've only scratched the surface of a lot, so I'm excited to get into it. I know, I feel like I've been holding back on a lot of our previous conversations, because I'm like, I want to wait for the podcast <laughs> to really get into it. Um, but you, but yeah, I mean, do you want to say a little bit about what you do? Yes, so I co-found a company um, with my co-founder Regina called Mendu, and Mendu is a mental health app. Um, that is geared towards marginalized women, especially women of color, to better their mental health. And basically, we started it because my co-founder, Regina, was a therapist and was overwhelmed with patients of um, looking for therapists that were better suited for their backgrounds. However, that there was a low supply of physical therapists. And a lot of people, she realized, just didn't have the basic tools about mental health. And then on the other side, um, I was working in um, neurobiology and I was doing kind of wet lab work as well as going into the clinics and seeing what patients are facing. And I was also seeing a similar thing. I was seeing a lot of misdiagnoses with mental health. I was seeing a lot of um, patients not knowing certain mental health coping skills just because um, lack of education, mainly from the physician standpoint, from my perspective, um, but also because of their, that there is this stigma between mental health. So um, people didn't come in until their mental health was very severe. So there was no uh, of this maintenance of mental health um, because of stigma, especially in the Black community um, and also in other communities, uh, other communities as well. So what we wanted to do was create a platform that was less scary. Um, we think a lot of the kind of more um, like science proven apps that are out there are a little bit um, sterile, a little scary, and also none, no apps that are out there are really interactive and are geared towards women or women or people with diverse backgrounds. All of them are utilized coming from data from white men, from usually white cis people. So we really wanted to create cultivate a space and cultivate science-driven mental health um, tools and resources and interactive like interactive programs that are geared towards marginalized women. So that's what we wanted to do. Um, we started interviewing women of various backgrounds. Uh, we started with 200 and now we are slowly increasing to get ready for a second beta launch. And we're just talking to so many people, accumulating so much information, which is great. That's so exciting and incredible yeah. that you've you've got so many people involved already. Um, I wanted yes. to pick up a little bit on what you said earlier in that people often don't come to get support until it's like, you know, really a crisis yes. point. And I guess I just wanted to know your thoughts on why you think that is. I know that it's linked to stigma, but if you had any further insights. Yeah, I also think it's due to misinformation about mental health. So even when I teach things like burnout, a lot of people are surprised by the burnout symptoms. And so people are like, oh, you know, I'm not sleeping as well as I used to, but it's just stress. I'll just, you know, get over it. I think there's just lack of awareness of where 
our thresholds are in terms of our mental health and how we need to intervene usually a lot earlier than we think we do. So uh, I feel like a big, you know, other reason why people wait so long to get help for mental health disorders that, you know, started off mild to moderate. I'm not talking about mental health disorders that come in as severe, um, kind of like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I'm talking about kind of um, mild to moderate symptoms of anxiety or depression or chronic CPTSD. And so I feel like there's lack of information out there on how to manage our symptoms. And a big part of that is because um, you know, when someone tries to set up for a therapy appointment, you know, that's something that is going to be very concrete for them. Let's say um, I've heard people say the wait time is like seven months. So then, you know, they're starting to get probably past the level where they there's already a little bit past the level of where, you know, they should have gotten help. But then now this, you know, everything's set up to the fact that they can't get an appointment for now seven or eight months or even longer. And then even at that point, they might not get a person that understands their needs. So that is another huge barrier in the mental health industry. Yeah, I have to agree. Like even when I was at university and I asked for a therapy appointment, they told me that the waiting list was two years. (laughs) Oh my god! And I was just kind of like, oh, um, right. I guess I'll find something else. (laughs) You're Um, like, oh, that's great. You know, not like I'm feeling bad right now. No, literally, it was terrible. Um, (laughs) But like, I guess it also then kind of pushes people towards medication, which I am totally for. Like, I don't have any issue with medication. It's one of the only reasons why I was in the position to be able to get more support in the first place. Yeah. But like, it then leads to that reliance on because there's nothing available other than medication for most people. That's just what we go to, Um, which is a shame because I think it's a nice like mix of both is, is what helps a lot of people. Yes, it is the mix of both. So and I'm pretty sure there's nothing that out there that says like, just medication is what you need if you're dealing with these uh, really common mental health disorders. But most often, even with me, it's medication is the easiest thing was at least for from my perspective here in New York, the easiest thing to get. The psychiatry appointments are usually really quick in my experience. And it was a lot easier to get a psychiatry appointment compared to a therapy appointment. And not all the times was I asked, oh, am I in therapy? Um, as well. So that is also alarming too. And I think medication, you know, obviously has changed my life and has really helped me get through some of like the harder hurdles of mental health. But I, you know, it really hasn't been until the past few years that I've been in like really good therapy. And that has really pushed me further even more because I'm still slipping back into days where I'm like, or days, weeks, months, Um, where my mental health was bad. And I'm like, well, I'm taking this medication, like, you know, everything should be going well, but that's not going to be the case. No. And and I think a lot of people assume that medication is just going to like fix everything. (laughs) Because that's what I originally assumed, right? And and honestly, it it kind of just evened things out for me, ultimately, and and allowed me to feel a bit clearer in my head to be able to then make other decisions rather than like, oh, it's fixed. (laughs) My depression is fixed. (laughs) Exactly. And I realize that that's a lot of perspectives. And going into it, I think um, a lot of people worry about different things. Some people are like, oh, it's going to fix all my problems, which is not going to be the case. Some people are worried that, um, you know, they might feel different or think differently, um, even though that's, you know, not how that medication works as well. So yeah, there's a lot of, again, misinformation on how mental health like medications work, which is so unfortunate. 
Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And you mentioned as well about how like the stigma is different across different cultures and and such. And I'd like to kind of go into a little bit more as as to how it's different, but also why it's more damaging to folks where misinformation is a lot more common, uh, or the stigma is a lot higher, uh, and and people yes. feel like they're not they're not able to reach out and talk to people. Yes. So thankfully, researchers are coming up with cultural competencies in terms of mental health with within every single culture um, that's available. It, there was a publicly available document from the National Institute of Health, which is online if anyone wants to look at it. For looking at the Black community especially, the lack of, I, it's mainly a miscommunication difference. So let's say um, a person comes in who is African-American and is talking about their symptoms what researchers have noticed and what I've also noticed within my own community is that we communicate different things within ourselves differently, let's say, than, you know, white people do. Mm -hmm. So let's say we're talking about usually talking about like depression and things like that. A lot of African-American women come in and say, you know, I've been feeling really like on edge, very irritable. And then there's this leads to maybe another diagnosis. But actually, if you look at the entire like trends within our community, you know, this, this symptom is actually associated with um, depression uh, when people are actually clinically diagnosed. So it's more about understanding our language, also understanding our body language, understanding um, our particular community vernacular. Um, there's a couple of like phrases that we say that it's also really misconstrued. Um, you know, for example, let's say if I use the word like crazy a lot, it doesn't mean I'm actually like undergoing psychosis. It could mean that I'm very just hyper -ener energetic. And so it's really up to the physicians or whoever is on the other, the other end receiving this information to translate all of this or to probe and ask more questions instead of jumping to a conclusion. So that is, you know, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I think that's a big hurdle that um, people need to under just understand. I think even if you don't know everything, I think it really helps physicians, um, nurses, everyone asking, just probing more and not jumping to conclusions. A hundred percent. And and yes, it definitely answered my question, but I think it's so valuable to kind of add that ultimately physicians are also people, right? And so they can only make assumptions based on their own worldview. And so if, if they don't start to ask questions and probe and maybe see like, what actually do you mean? What do you feel like would help you right now? Then that might also lead to a bias in diagnosis and treatment as well. So I, yeah, I fully agree with, with what you're saying. I think it's really important. Yeah, exactly. And also the, I, I was thinking about, you know, how these, you know, mental health differences across um, different communities. It's like the behavior, people always put, you know, physicians and these people on a pedestal when, and they really forget, you know, they're people too with their own biases. And I think that's been, also been a huge barrier to research for these things because people are like, why, you know, are you saying that physicians are wrong? And it's like, yes, you know, they are wrong. Like researchers can be wrong, like we, but we need to face it and investigate it instead of just saying, oh, they're always right 100% of the time. Like a doctor can't be wrong. Yeah. And it's scary sometimes, especially if you go in to see a physician and they tell you something that you know in your heart isn't what, what's wrong with you, but you know your yes. body better than anyone else. It's so hard to just kind of like dismiss yourself and be like, oh, maybe I'm just over exaggerating or whatever. And it's just like, try a different doctor. 
if you yes. can like if you're able to do that just try it because I I was misdiagnosed with I I was I thought I had asthma uh, it turned out it was oh panic gosh. attacks so because <laughs> uh, oh I was like I can't breathe sometimes he was like well you don't have asthma so you're probably fine like uh, and then it went like four years past and I was like oh my god right I get it now uh, and it took me ages to be able to figure that out but I never probed any further because I figured oh well the doctor told me I don't have asthma so it must be nothing oh my gosh yeah it's Definitely understanding your body and knowing your body is key. I cannot believe like years were going by and the doctor's like, it's nothing. Like you were were uncomfortable. And I think, you know, realizing that doctors are people too and like they can make mistakes. They have their own things going on. I think that can help broaden people's viewpoint being like, okay, this is scary, you know, but at least I know I can feel comfortable to either speak up or to change my, you know, how I'm attacking this, go to a different doctor, get another opinion if I need to. So I think that is, it's very, I think it's very scary to think about that at first, but also very empowering. Yeah, it it can be really scary. And, and, you know, it extends to other things as well, especially if, you know, you you have been prescribed medication and it's not working out for you. It's totally okay to go back and be like, listen, it's not working. Can we try something else? Like you don't have to, I know that sometimes it takes a long time, but if you really don't feel like you're, it's working for you, <laughs> then it's okay to go and, and talk about it, you know? Exactly, exactly. Or if you are, yeah, worried about a diagnosis. Like I, you know, I've been like knowing all these mental health statistics for the past few years. And also just, yeah, working in neurobiology. I know a lot of them because I used to work with a MD, PhD, a physician for anyone who doesn't know. And I've known that Black people especially are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder compared to any other demographic, even though, you know, they have the same like prevalence or the same rate of these disorders within every single community. So they're, they're not, they don't, they're actually not more likely to have it. It's just, they're more likely to be diagnosed with it. And that actually happened to me where someone was trying to tell me like, oh, like try to completely, like I've had my diagnoses of depression, anxiety for, since I was like 13 and someone was trying to tell me I had bipolar disorder like I think of just a couple of years ago and I was like that is not right and they're like oh you need to get on medication for it and I've seen in real life like what have taking the wrong medication can do to a person and so I've also had to fight and advocate so it's just unfortunate that even you know that these kind of disparities exist like even for someone who you know can communicate their mental health challenges and like I know mental health terminology like I know what's going on with myself like you know to know like it's not your fault for you know being misdiagnosed or feeling incorrect like it's not that you didn't know enough like even for me and I was like I was like I do not I was like I'm so sorry but I I'm sorry I don't I don't think a diagnosis that I've had for over 10 years is now you know, flipped on its head. Like, you know, I'm not going to keep going to you. Yeah. And it can be really scary to be able to do that because it's kind of like one of those things where it's an authority figure. And so you feel as though, well, they've told me this, so it's, it's what it is. Right. And there's nothing else. And I'm not an expert on mental health, so I can't really argue with this person. Um, and so it's, it's good to be able to even just have that thought process where you're like, if you're not totally comfortable with what's happening, don't just go along with it because it can have effect, like like you say, t- taking the wrong medication can have serious effects, um, and that's not always communicated at 
prescription level, I don't feel. No, it's not. So I would say, you know, if especially if you're getting a change in diagnosis suddenly um, without, you know, you going in and getting tested for it, uh, I would definitely, you know, just ask more questions. You know, I ask that person like, okay, why do you feel this way? This is only my second time in seeing you. Like, why do you feel all of a sudden like I have a different um, mental health illness? So I think, you know, you don't have to always come at it from a defensive, even though like I fully support that as well. But if you're someone like me who, you know, doesn't really like, you know, confrontation that much. So I would always just probe a little bit more and have them really think about, is this the best option for this person? Like if I'm really thinking about it, I've only, you know, seen this person one other hour, you know, one other day and I'm making this jump now. Is that really the best decision? So I would always just probe a little bit more into their minds and see how you feel. Mm-hmm. And what about what about therapy then in like cultural differences as well? Like, do you, is there a difference across like, I guess, again, culture, but also socioeconomic on people going to therapy? Because obviously a lot of the time it is very, it's a privileged thing to be able to go to if you're able to, but also it can be quite nerve wracking to even start that process if you don't know what to expect, especially if there are already like systemic biases against you. Um, so I wondered what your thoughts were on that and also how that links to what Mendu is trying to achieve with like the audio and the more like relaxing, like open mindedness of the app itself. Yes. So there are several barriers to therapy. You know, the first one we always like to get, like, you know, talk about is the affordability. So, you know, right now I do have a better insurance plan in the U.S. that allows for therapy to be you know, $20 a visit, but even that could, you know, it adds up over time. And so that like, you know, me being on the less expensive end is still going to be something that is going to be expensive over time. And so affordability is a huge thing with therapy. Um, another thing is accessibility. If you have to go to an office, even if you are doing a virtual visit, like, do you have the time out of your workday to go to a private place and have this one hour therapy session? Uh, it's going to really vary in terms of like what you do. And a lot of therapists have limited hours. You know, they see a lot of patients, especially if you're looking for someone from a certain background, a marginalized background, you are going to run into a little more barriers than the average person. So that is a huge thing. Another thing is when you're actually in the therapy office, you know, you're less likely to get someone who is of your same background. Um, So let's, it took me a long time to even find a black therapist. Like, This is the first, um, in the past five years or so, was the first time I've had a Black therapist. Before that, it's always been therapists of different backgrounds um, just because of what was available to me. So that was really hard because I felt like I had to hide a portion of myself because I had to hide like the way I'm talking about things, the way I describe things, just because I, you know, when I do describe things in a way that's, um, or talk in the way that's common in my community, I feel like other people look at me like, you know, I'm, I don't make any sense. Like I have four eyes all of a sudden. So that is always very, it's not a good feeling in a therapy office to try to, when you're like slipping into, you know, getting more comfortable with yourself, being yourself, and someone doesn't understand um, the way you express yourself. So, And that's a huge barrier. And then I think another one is, um, you know, whether there's differences in socioeconomic classes. So it's, 
you know, a therapist, when you're going there, they're recommending these tools to do. And if they're not conscious of, you know, the time that you have to do them, you know, let's say they're making, they were like, oh, buy this workbook. That's a huge thing in therapy. It's like buy a workbook that's like $50, work on it, all this stuff. And, you know, that is all like time and money that some people don't have you know, to give. And so there's also some other things I might suggest that are just not practical for different lifestyles. So I think those are huge barriers to overcome with um, traditional therapy. And then I think with um, the introduce, now we're introducing kind of more apps and platforms for mental well-being. and Mendu is really trying to step in and be and utilize these behavioral tools. So using audio, using texting and using an interactive programs and interactive and algorithmic chatbot that allows people to work through their thoughts and feelings in a way that a therapist would. But this therapist is an AI that was trained with data from a diverse group of people and can help you solve problems in a quicker way than a therapist, you know, would, you know, when you wait for your session one hour a week or every other week. And then it also tests you and like, you know, based off of clinical questions that are already out there and see how you're improving over time. So that's kind of where we want to jump in. And then you have the other side, which is teletherapy. And teletherapy is, you know, really trying to um, eliminate some of those, you know, discrepancies that we talked about, like affordability, um, well, not I, I would say affordability is still up in the air because I would say the price differences are still pretty high for those teletherapy, but you know accessibility and things like that. Um, but there are other barriers that they need to overcome with you know the therapists that are on the platform, better screening for them. I know people have had a lot of problems with the telehealth therapists compared to in-person therapy. So you know there's still you know there are barriers with traditional therapy. Um, you know I'm all for traditional therapy. Uh, of course, you know, Regina, my co-founder, he has practice therapy, but, you know, we really need to find a better way to serve people um, that isn't going to be so much of a headache so that they, you know, start to feel better. And so that these things are going to, you know, like seeing an in-person therapist and taking medication, like these things are actually going to supplement and all work in synergy together to help instead of like, you know, everyone feeling lost and broken down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think one of the yeah. things that I found really interesting about Mendu when I looked into it was the the audio implementation that it has with it, because one of the things that I see quite a lot with people that I work with, but also like myself, is that using like audio and, and speaking and voice notes and stuff is, is a much easier way for me to convey what I'm trying to get across rather than like typing and writing. Uh, I really struggle with getting uh, getting it out, and I, I say ironically, and now struggling over my words, of course. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but like when I'm trying to convey an emotion or really get into something that how I'm feeling, texting or writing is fine. But ultimately, talking like physically talking with someone or talking at something is way more helpful to me. And I think that's probably the same for a lot of other people as well. Um, because it's you're using your own words and it's less about interpretation when text is a lot easier to misinterpret. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, like, have you had any feedback about the audio implementation within Mendu? Yes. Yeah. So that the feedback for the audio, when we first um, put it together with our first beta app, we got 
um, tremendous feedback with it. Everyone loved the feature. And then it was the reason why we put it together is because it was proven scientifically by a group at Stanford um, that these audio features in a web-based platform for going through mental health issues was going to be the best way to synergize um, both the therapeutic aspects of whatever you're trying to deliver through your web. It was at the time web-based platform. It was the study was done a couple of years ago, um, but now it's you know through you know a mobile-based platform or app. So we it was proven scientifically, but no one was doing it. Everyone was focusing on the text-based features. So p- the fact that we were able to um, have them record. It also has speech to text, so it'll write out what you're saying and then save it in a diary format. Everyone loved that feature and that people thought it was easier for when they were walking their dog or if they were, you know, doing laundry, especially, you know, with our work from home lifestyles with a lot of people, everyone's kind of on the move doing a thousand things at once. So it was a lot easier for them to just talk in their phone and then have um, the, you know, the app do the work for them and like keeping track of what they were feeling and what they were saying. Yeah, because I feel like when you write stuff down, it, it kind of becomes a task that then it's like, right, well, yes. I have to set aside X amount of time to go and sit down and focus on this specifically. Whereas it's nice, like you say, to just be able to pick it up while you're doing like chores or whether you're like just I don't know, walking around. It, it feels a lot nicer to be able to put that into your everyday. Exactly. Yeah. And make it more of a like a routine thing, I guess, as well. <laughs> exactly. So that is another thing. So the like the frequency in which you do these tasks, like in which you like tend to your mental health is, you know, a lot. It is directly tied to, you know, how well a certain therapeutic program is going to work. So, you know, having something that people can do more frequently is going to benefit them in the long run. Um, That's something that feels a lot harder, uh, but maybe is a lot easier to develop like something that's text-based. Yeah, 100%. Now, I think it's, I think it's so interesting, honestly, and it's, it's great to hear that it's becoming like more as well and and that you've got so much more plans for the future. And I guess like what, what are, what would you like to see men do become? Yes. So um, what we're aiming to become is a really community, like also have a community driven aspect too. So, you know, we've developed the audio feature. We are refining that and getting that ready for the next launch. And then we're also refining our algorithm um, and our AI chatbot. So um, right now the feature is not publicly available, but basically um, what this chatbot does and what I've, we've trialed it um, and we're building it and we're like talking to it. It, you know, works through your thoughts and feelings in a CBT framework. Um, so that is really interesting. And I love that it has the ability to ask you questions and that you can respond with your voice directly in the app or directly. Um, for me, it's like another, we're using another platform to build it. So I respond to it directly, like on my computer. And it's giving me really good feedback on how to work through a particular thought loop. Um, and get through, you know, a challenging time or, you know, let's say I'm ruminating on something and actually give me productive feedback on that and then have me move through it. And so that's really nice. And then and in the future, I would really want it to be a community driven space where people could also just get together and, you know, de- you know, get and learn about mental health, destigmatize mental health, and just like have more visibility on it. So if there's, um, you know, just a safe space for people to go to and, and just chat as well. 
Yeah, because I what I really liked about Mendu when I opened it was that it's not just about journaling. Like there is there are resources built into the app as well that's you know, like things that are prompting you on how to be a better ally and how to understand mental health and how to find a practitioner and stuff. And that's so important. Exactly. Exactly. And I think incorporating other people's experiences in that would be uh, very beneficial as well because, you know, we're gathering this um, and we're putting this together with, you know, our perspective and, and a few other perspectives. But, you know, we ultimately we want to be able to have this for everyone. So we want to have people talk about like, you know, how to best support, you know, people in the LGBT community, how to best support, you know, you know, black women, like during, you know, a time of crises. I know right now the um, black women in STEM community, we're going through a mental health crisis. We lost two people in the past couple of weeks um, who were PhD candidates. And so we're all on Twitter, you know, talking about, you know, everything that's going on. But, you know, I feel like it would be really beneficial for us to have, you know, a platform for other people. Because right now it's really just us in a circle talking about, you know, what we need to do to support each other. Um, but I also want us to be able to, you know, really vocalize like how other people can support us and, you know, what we might need and what things have to change for us to feel the best. So I really just want to have a community driven aspect just because I've seen just how powerful community is and um, how necessary it is for everyone to understand these conversations. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm so sorry to hear about that as well. That's that's really tough. Yes, yeah. I um, It kind of got me into a, you know, in a wake-up call last week. It feels like, you know, so much time has passed since that happened. But, you know, it's all these things really are wake-up calls to, you know, not only our community, but also to other communities to be like, you know, we need things to change. You know, there are, you know, mental health issues look differently on different people, you know, that we just need, you know, actual systematic changes and, you know, so much support to get through everything. So that's exactly what I'm just going to continue to like talk about, like get on my soapbox um, and always make sure to advocate for. No, I'm with you. And it's a very apt time to be talking about that on International Women's Day as well, because we've we I put out a post today actually for Safe in Our World that was about um, like celebrating is great, but ultimately there's a lot of changes that need to happen to be able to make it safer for women to thrive in environments that yes. are genuinely like or generally, I should say, um, male dominated and less safe for women, but also um, like you know, there's there's issues like the the wage gap is still very real, mm-hmm. especially in a lot of different fields that are male dominated and, and like there's a lot of different issues within um the way that we work that don't incorporate issues mm-hmm. that women uh, deal with. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, what's great about really vocalizing these things is just more people are gonna understand, wait, I don't have to like feel so burnt out, you know, at the end of like every, you know, week, just because I'm working this way, like the way I'm working, like I can have it work for me. And just, you know, everyone's sharing their different tips and tricks on how to like get through um, a work week. Like I know, like, thankfully, I work in spaces that are very women led women like driven. Um, So like, if I need to go a lot slower on a week where I'm PMSing, like that's very, you know, a very open conversation. But 
um, you know, we need to tell other women like, you don't, you know, you can also advocate for this as well for yourself. Yeah, definitely. Because it's like, it was one thing that I was always really nervous about in a previous job to like ever mention that I was on my period. And once I had to send yes. someone out to get tampons for me and bless him, he was so nice about it. Oh. But I was like, I can't go. <laughs> like yeah. I, I literally can't go right now. So I need you to do something for me. Um, but I was so embarrassed to be able to ask for that. And it's like, why is that such a big deal? It shouldn't be. <laughs> Exactly. It's like a basic right. It should be like, oh, our office like needs toilet paper. Could someone go out and get that? It shouldn't be any different than that. And I'm just so glad that you were able to ask that because yeah, there are times like you like you can't go out and get it. Like you have to have it supplied within wherever space you work. Like everybody should be able to like gather those supplies. Like it shouldn't be just on women to like, okay, I need to stock you know, this space for, for, for us, like, it shouldn't always be on us. No, exactly. And that also leads back to, you know, the general equity around women in tech and women in science and in the games industry specifically as well, because it should not just be up to women to be able to advocate for themselves. And we also need people to be allies to help with equity in the workplace and fair pay and like so many different things and, and fair recruitment systems yes. and stuff. So, Yeah. Oh, that's exactly. a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, that is a whole other conversation. And that is something I, I'm very involved with, especially at Columbia. It's a whole other conversation, but we need all the support we can get. 100%. But yeah, let's talk about games because we haven't actually covered yes. that yet. And I'm very excited to talk yes. about it with you. <laughs> I am excited too. Yeah. I mean, what what games do you have that are like special to you that have a meaning that maybe are your go-to comfort games? Oh, okay. I will say my go-to comfort game is actually – I was thinking about it really hard. It's currently The Sims. I feel like The Sims is my comfort game. I also like games like Minecraft, you know, Animal Crossing, things that just have a very soothing background and mm. just allow me to choose like, oh, can like can I go out and do something that's a little more taxing or can I just, you know – work around and like build this like perfect life for me. So that's kind of what I really, those are my comfort games. Um, I of course was trying to play like Halo with my cousins, like, and I used to love doing that. I like being more like in like interactive and engaged in my games as well. And I also love like first perspective games as well. Um, even though it's been a few years since I've walked through a full like first person game. Um, I was telling you last time I'm currently watching The Last of Us. So that's really yeah. cool. And it's bringing me back yeah, to a different time in my life. Uh, <laughs> like one winter break where I was just playing Last of Us. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And like I felt my life was blown. Um, but I, yeah, I really like just soothing um, games with soothing music and allowed me to like have like a lot of choices. I love that. Yes, I was actually talking about this with someone earlier because I've got right back into my Stardew Valley period where I just I am obsessed. I can't help it. Like I'm just I'm living in yes. Stardew Valley and I'm not mad about it because it's just delightful. Yes. Like you can go to bed at 2, 2, 2 p.m. No one's going to say anything to you. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. And I, it's great. I love that the games allow you to like break kind of rules a little bit. Like you can just do whatever you want and you feel so much less judgment. And I, I love that. Yes, me too. I um, 
yeah, Stardew Valley is definitely a big comfort game for me. But as soon as you said like The Sims and Animal Crossing and Minecraft, uh, they are like the three top <sighs> games for my colleague Sky, who would be <laughs> who would be very happy to meet you, I'm sure, because they. Um, yeah very much it is comforting it's having that control over something that doesn't really matter but it like allows you that feeling of of like I don't know how to explain it it occupies your mind in a way where it's not stressful yes exactly and I was thinking about it I was like oh what if I can say I there's so many other things I can say I was like but these are my comfort games like this is what I love to do. Like if if it's like a whole long day or especially like for me, it was like school breaks. Like that's a huge time for me to like get back into these games. Like it's really allows me to de-stress like after finals, after taking a whole bunch of exams, like it allows – takes my brain somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Do you have any yeah. games that you like – hold very like close in your heart not necessarily that are comforting because I have a lot of games that I absolutely adore but I probably wouldn't play like very regularly just because they like they can be quite emotionally taxing or whatever Uh, so I wondered if you had any of those oh my gosh I would say the ones that are emotionally taxing is The Walking Dead I I haven't um, replayed (laughs) it in a little I haven't replayed it a little bit but that was one I, I that was one that had me sobbing and I was yeah. like wow this is wild so wild yeah I ugly cried at the walking dead especially yes the end of the first season I was in yes. pieces I needed a break <laughs> I was like how did this happen to me I was like I was getting into it. I was like oh this is cool like this is so cool and then I'm like just at the end sobbing like Oh my gosh. And I thought like Clementine was like the cutest. Oh my goodness. I know. Apparently it was really hard for them, understandably, but it was really hard for them to like record (laughs) that scene. I'm not going to mention anything. No spoilers here, but there's a really sad scene. And it was very difficult for them to record that, understandably, because of the like trauma that it involved. Oh my gosh, so traumatic. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I that is a game that I do hold near and dear. Like and I and I st- I kept playing it. I was like, okay, take a breather. Take a breather for a day. Let's get back into it and try something else. Yeah, I remember being really into that um when I was working at a cafe and I'd just be like doing the washing up or whatever, and all I'd be thinking about is playing the walking dead when I got back. Yes. But then by the time no, I got it, back, I was so tired, I didn't want to play it. <laughs> exactly. No, it it was, yeah, it was a different era of time where it was just like, yeah, that's all I wanted to do was just like cozy up. Like I did have to have a, you know, good amount of sleep because I wanted to play for a while. But I love like cozying up, especially like a Saturday or Sunday morning and just getting into it. I think those are my favorite games to play. Mm. Yeah, I'm I feel like, like I'm very cozy, very cozy oh, person, yeah. I'm realizing me too. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love cozy games so much. They just make you feel, I don't know, it's comforting. It's nice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Have um have games like played a part in your own mental health journey? Like, do you think they've helped you? Yes, substantially. And like I was talking about, I think it helped me in my college years for undergrad a lot. Um, and also like, you know, beyond, just because I after finals, I just had so I really, I would always like push myself to the limit and I had so much like pent up energy. I was so worried about the exam grades, like, oh, am I going to pass? Like, and so playing games for me after finals, like in between that time between like, you know, taking your finals and um, getting the grades back was just so like, so beneficial for me. And I really like, you know, I'm so proud of myself for 
like not, you know, just thinking myself into a hole and doing something for myself, like playing video games during that time. But it's, that was a such an, it's such an anxious period to be in. Like you're like, oh, this final grade can count for like 30% like of like my class grade. It's so it was really great to have something to distract me and get me through that period of time. Yeah. I also was like a huge um, advocate for games during uni, like, because it is, it's, it's really strange environment because you're like in this like isolated thing where everything is like life or death, even though it's not. Yes. (laughs) But it feels like it is. And it's kind of, I guess that's always been in, in education, at least here as well, is that like everything matters so much until the next thing. And then that's the thing that matters the most and nothing else really matters before then. And it's like, there's always something else that is more important than you (laughs) in a way that's like how it felt right because it was like this doesn't matter if you're tired you've got to do this this is important for your future um but you know you're also you're important for your future because you have to get there yourself and that's daunting to think about so yeah and it's hard because you know usually you're so young when you're going so yeah it's you're very influenced by this like you know life or death type of like mindset in your head like I have to do this or I'm gonna fail everything so it's really good to develop things to help you or to have things in your toolkit to help you cope with those feelings when you're like I just feel like I could like lose every like you know time you think you can lose everything even though that's not actually true Um, but to cope with that it's always good to have something that you can do um, to kind of ease your anxiety yeah no 100% and I guess I had one more question that was more about if you had any words of wisdom for people who are marginalized, who are looking to get into fields that are, you know, white male dominated, um, because I think that's a really valuable thing to be able to see and, and seeing people thrive in who like look like you and who are like in industries where you want to also thrive in is so important. Uh, and I just wondered if you had anything that you'd like to say to people who are aspiring to to be like you, I guess. Oh, that's a really great question. So I, yeah, I like to preface, like, preface this with saying I, you know, go to a lot of like panels. I talk to a lot of undergraduate students. And a big reason I do that is to, you know, increase visibility. I feel like in the neuroscience space, like in my department, I'm the only black woman there. Like it's, it's just me. So going for me, I love going to talk to undergraduate students, especially from other colleges, to have them see like it is possible. And then also tell them that, you know, the people like all these other people who are at the quote unquote top, like they are not smarter than you. It's like you you are just as like smart just as you are. You know, if you're inquisitive about science, like if you like science, like if you like whatever field that you're doing in, I would encourage you to go for it. You know, I think you also don't have to run yourself into the ground by doing it. You know, I would always look for mentors, go online. Um, I found a lot of uh, my community for Black people in STEM online just because there wasn't there not any at my school currently and that helps me um you know either get science advice life advice just an extra support that i need um and then yeah just really persist i think it's really hard in this space to not get bogged down with like comments and to microaggressions that i still face every single day imposter syndrome but i think for me like i just really try to take a step back and be like, I'm still in this. Like, 
you know, I still like this. I can, um, even though it sucks, like there isn't any other way around it. It's like, you know, me like getting ignored in class when a subject, you know, I don't know if you know about the HeLa cells, but Henrietta Lacks and HeLa cells is a huge thing. And she, that actually happened in my hometown of Baltimore. And, you know, a professor was saying, oh, you know, this woman did such a great job donating her cells. And it was like, actually, she was a black woman in the colored ward of um, Johns Hopkins whose cells were stolen from her and she died. Like, so it's like, it's not like I, even though I want to like raise my hand and say that, um, you know, the, of course the professor didn't pick on me because they're probably like, oh, she's going to start something. And that's like so frustrating. But, you know, I think, you know, really, I really just think about, okay, what do I, I want to be in this space, like on the on the professor side, or just like on the other side of this, being like, I want to lift these people's like lift other voices up and be able to be that person to be like, I will call on you to like have you share your perspective. So for me to do that, I am I'm gonna have to persist through this space as long as it's not super detrimental to my mental health. Like as long as I can take the breaks that I need. So all I do is find support. Um, I have a great mentor who understands that I need to take frequent breaks, um, just understands my work, like life balance, things like that. Um, and I communicate that as best as I can. It's so frustrating that, that that's the case that you feel as though you have to kind of choose one or the other, it, the, the, you know, like advocating for yourself and actually understanding like, you know, the reality of, of history is mutually exclusive because that should never be the case. And I'm so sorry that you, you feel like you have to choose and that you're, you are like consistently affected by microaggressions at work and in a professional setting. Cause yeah, it just shouldn't happen. Yeah. I think right now in my academic life, like that is really persisted just because I am the, like the first and the only one, like after me, it, you know, will get easier. It will be, it's slightly easier. Of course, these things are still going to persist, but, um, you know, I am trying to fight to have, you know, more marginalized students join our program. And like, I know that the work that me and other students are doing right now are going to benefit the people coming after us. But yeah, I, I completely recognize like right now it's hard. Like it's, you know, there's, I'm persisting. Um, I am taking like more breaks, like compared to my peers, but saying all of that, I will say I am still somehow like ahead in my work. Like, I don't think my work is suffering. I think it's not as good as maybe it could be. Um, but I would say like, in terms of my workload related to my peers. It's like, I'm actually ahead, which is really interesting to think about. Um, but, you know, everything else, like, I'm like, okay, even though I'm not doing the work that I think I could do, like, I'm still like on track, everything's going fine. So like, I know I need to take the time out to do like better my mental health to take time to do men do things that actually feed me with a lot of joy just because I'm always working with a lot of diverse women who really pour into me and our work really energizes me and do other things that energize me as well. So um, I just know I need to just take some step backs and, um, and do other things as well. Yeah. No, honestly, th- honestly, it's been so nice to have you on the podcast. Like, thank you so much. Um, for being so candid and so honest about your work that you're doing and and it's like incredible the amount of of work that has gone into men do and I'm so excited to continue to see that grow as well thank you so much so yeah thank you I mean where can people find out more about men do and about your work if they want to online yes so we do have a website um my my um you can also find us on instagram twitter tiktok just at 
my men do. Um, you can also follow me and Regina. Um, and I think it's just our names are going to be also in the link in bio for Instagram and our website, which is really nice. And yeah, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to talk about Mendu or it's just STEM related questions, you can find me there um, at my full name, which is Demetria Fortson. And you can also send any emails to um, mymendu at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Safe Space. If you're struggling, please know that there is support out there. And if you're looking for somewhere to start, please do visit our website at safeinourworld.org for a list of global helplines, information and support. You can also find us on all of the social medias at Safe in Our World if you'd like to follow the charity in our future endeavours. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.